reading this morning can be found on page 1085 on the Bibles in front of you. And we're reading from John chapter 18, starting at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? she asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers here. It's uh, lovely to be in church this morning. Great day it is. We've already uh, prayed. So uh, we'll get straight down to the business of this text. If you'd have your Bibles open to John 18, that would be, I think, um, profitable for us all. This past week, the first headline that I read in the newspaper had this, If only I could rewrite the script. That was the headline. If only I could rewrite the script. And the attached article told the story of Matt Golinski. Looks like this. Uh, He was a well-known chef whose Sunshine Coast house caught on fire a few Christmases ago when smoke detectors didn't detect flames that had started from some dodgy Christmas lights. And he lost his wife and three daughters, suffered third-degree burns to 40% of his body. Uh, As you can see from the photo, he's returned to working as a chef, but obviously his life will never be the same. If only I could rewrite the script, he says, I would install better smoke alarms. If only I could rewrite the script, I would... Well, what would you do? What would you do? All of us, I think, will have multiple answers to that question, and I suspect the older we get the more and the more varied ways we could finish that sentence. If only I could rewrite the script. Uh, That sentence is the essence of regret, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't always have to be serious. Uh, If only I could rewrite the script, I wouldn't buy that Ab Cruncher 2000. (laughs) If only I could rewrite the script, I wouldn't get that haircut. 
only I could rewrite the script, I wouldn't go there at that time of year with those people. But often it is serious, isn't it? It's really serious. There's just something you wished you'd done that you left undone or you just missed a really significant opportunity or perhaps there was something that you did that was unwise or it was destructive or it was hurtful to others or to yourself and you just wish you could have a redo. You wish you could make it over. You wish you could have another crack at it because regrets, well, we've all got a few of those. Now, this summer series, as you can see from the slide above, we're looking at some of the life lessons from the Apostle Peter, who was Jesus' right-hand man in the New Testament. He's a real guy. Um, You might say he's a larger-than-life kind of figure. Certainly, he was a man who played out his mistakes in public, and we are trying to learn from his mistakes and his regrets. Now, Billy Joel, the original piano man, he said, he said, you're not the only one who's made mistakes, but they're the only things which you can truly call your own. And that might be true, but it's better to learn from the mistakes of others. And so this summer, we're learning from the mistakes of the Apostle Peter in order that we don't make the exact same mistakes ourselves continuously. Uh, And so, so far, we've seen the Apostle Peter doubt Jesus' power. And last week, we saw him misunderstand Jesus' cross. He wanted a crossless Christ. He wanted a Messiah who didn't go to his death. But today we're going to see Peter denying Jesus or deny knowing Jesus in what is, I think, a really familiar passage, not just because we're familiar with the story and the rooster crowing and all that sort of thing, but actually because we're familiar with denying knowing Jesus in our own lives. And so there are definitely lessons for us to learn here today. Now, um, before we think about what denying knowing Jesus might look like in our life, and how we might possibly avoid such mistakes in the future, we need to kind of clearly watch how Peter denies knowing Jesus from John chapter 18, which is why it's important that you have it open in front of you. And in actual fact, we need to go back further to John chapter 13, verse 37. It's still on the same night before Jesus was crucified, and Jesus has told his disciples that he will be betrayed, he will be killed, and all the disciples will leave him. And then Peter kind of arcs up with his kind of customary bravado. And he says this, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus replies with what is familiar, but still a really brooding retort. And he says, will you really? Is that what you're going to do for me, Peter, is it? Truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And you fast forward uh, some five chapters, but actually just a few short hours later. And in chapter 18, we find Jesus and the disciples in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is betrayed by the disciple Judas, as predicted. He's handed over to the Jewish religious authorities for a hasty trial. Peter, with characteristic, unceasing, typical, stereotypical, you just knew he was going to do something like this, pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, despite Jesus' insistence that he was always going to go to the cross. It was always going to be this way, inevitably, necessarily. He would suffer and die. It's a great rush on, you see. Uh, They had to speed through all the legalities so that Jesus could get executed by the time the Jewish Sabbath commenced at sundown on Friday and so Jesus is being questioned inside the house of the high priest or 
kind of the former high priest. But the Apostle John, who is the unnamed disciple, the eyewitness who's writing this event, he interrupts the interrogation going on inside the house to focus on the events going just outside the house, in that courtyard where Peter is kind of warming himself by the fire. And I think what you've got here is John paralleling the two. He's saying Jesus is being tried by an enemy inside the house and he's being betrayed by a friend outside the house. And you see there in verses 17 and 18 that Peter is caught off guard by that servant girl's first inquisition and he promptly denies knowing Jesus as he stands there by the fire in the, in the cold of the night. Of course, the action then returns to Annas, uh, the former high priest, the real power broker in the priesthood. And as he questions Jesus, Jesus answers everything and evades nothing. What you see and what you hear from Jesus, you just get straight up, don't you? And then he is swiftly sent through to the formal holder of that office of high priest, Caiaphas, for further questioning so that the focus again turns to Peter. And you've got to wonder, don't you, what are you doing at all there, man? Really? Cold of the night, fraternizing with the enemy, close to Jesus but of no use to him, really. I mean, it's somewhere between odd and tragic, don't you think? And very bluntly, Peter denies knowing Jesus for a second time there in verse 25. I um, have these really fond memories of summer holidays. I I imagine you do as well. And uh, one of my memories of actually holidays in general when I was younger is that my mum would get my brother and my sister and me all dressed up and we'd trundle into the city for an afternoon, maybe to meet Dad after work and go and see a movie together. I remember catching the train into the city and all the excitement of going to the big toy shops in town. When I was little, I really loved cars. I still do. And I had a big collection of Matchbox cars. And Matchbox cars were sort of like Hot Wheels cars are today, except they were British made. And so they were just far superior at every level. And I saw uh, this car in the big toy shop in the city. And I still remember it to the day. It was a bronze-coloured Rover, (laughs) this big. I had a little sunroof you could move back and forth and I saw it and I wanted it and so I took it. Cool hand, Luke. Thank you very much. Opened the box, slid it out, slid it into my pocket. Somewhat stupidly, I started playing with it on the pavement right outside the store and uh, my mum, I don't know how she worked this out, my mum asked me where I got that car from. I said I brought it from home, which was an out-and-out lie. And then, uh, you know... (laughs) smart lady that she was she said did you steal that car and I said no I want it from Jamie Holt's birthday party that was at his house in Colleton Street interesting isn't it when you get caught you lie louder don't you and you lie bigger and that's that's what happens to Peter here when he's questions a third time I mean John's gospels are it's it's terser than the others Someone with a first-hand knowledge, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had bludgeoned off, was, who was there in the garden, questions Peter, and he denies knowing Jesus for a third time. You know, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that Peter lied louder, that he lied bigger. He said, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. But Peter did know, and uh, so did that rooster. Well, it crowed anyway, didn't it? And the bitter reality of Peter's denial was confirmed. Quite a contrast between um, Peter and Jesus at that point, isn't there? Uh, Jesus testifies faithfully. Uh, 
But Peter denies and crumbles pathetically. Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioners, denies everything. And Luke's gospel tells us that Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. And I think that we are inclined to just pull back a little from being too judgmental about Peter because we register his repeated denials in our own history, don't we? We know that same sense of shame in our own past as Peter denies knowing Jesus. But friends, it will not do for us merely to go easy on Peter just because his regret is our regret as well. And so secondly for today, we need to think about how we commonly deny knowing Jesus in our lives. Now, some of us might do that just in outright obvious ways. When pressed about matters of faith and religion, Christ, we just deny being religious. We deny having faith. We deny following Jesus. Now, now some of us might do that. I suspect that happens pretty rarely in our country, partly because it's unlikely we will get pressed so sharply about it. And it's probably more likely that the way we deny knowing Jesus is not outright denial, but it's just a series of missed opportunities or a lack of initiative or steering conversations away from Christian things or even just talking around Jesus. Now, let me say, I am I'm very conscious that it would take me all of 2.4 seconds. In fact, anyone, you don't even have to be good at it to make you feel really guilty in the Christian life. I mean, 2.2 seconds if you happen to be on fire that day. And so the point of, of thinking about this sort of stuff, it's not to make us feel guilty and just leave it there, which is fruitless, but hopefully so that we can identify what some of our habits might be so we can see if we might do things differently going forward. So other than an outright denial of knowing Jesus, I think the most common way we can deny knowing Jesus is that we can miss opportunities, sometimes almost deliberately, that present themselves in some way to testify to Jesus. So you think about conversations on Monday morning in the workplace, at the, the school gate, wherever it might be, at the cafe, and you're meeting up with friends, colleagues, workmates, other mums, whoever it is, and the conversation just naturally steers to what you did on the weekend. I mean, it's the most natural conversation at all, isn't it? And we'll happily talk about hitting the beach, you know, spending time in the green room, going for a nice walk by the sea, having dinner with friends, uh, having the kids over, whatever it might be. But we failed to mention that we went to church on Sunday morning. Now, why do we do that? I mean, we do it most Sunday mornings, significant part of our lives. Uh, maybe even our whole family comes along with us, why would we leave that out? Almost deliberately, deliberately it feels like it sometimes. Probably because we're just like Peter, isn't that right? Cowering before our interrogators. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you've got Christian friends, I wonder if you think, for, for all they love Jesus, they don't seem to talk about him very much. That might well be true. When I um, first moved to London, Back in 1999, which makes me feel old, I worked for an investment bank and it was uh, the days before the GFC and so there was cash galore and they uh, well and truly lived by the mantra of work hard, play hard, uh, even more so than when I worked in the city in Sydney. I mean, it was just an alcohol and cocaine fueled binge, it really was. Anyway, one day I was discussing doing some gardening uh, amongst my workmates 
And uh, this gardening was actually at a, a church working bee at a church that I just joined, which we really loved. And in London, everyone's always interested if you talk about everyone's interested in gardening because it can only ever happen when it's sunny and when it's warm, which is very rare. So people are automatically interested. And uh, one of the, the girls I worked with, she asked me where I was doing it. Now, why wouldn't I say church? Really, why wouldn't I? It was the truth for starters. It made plenty of sense. And I really loved my new church. But I just mumbled something evasively. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I remember exactly what I didn't say. And I recall feeling just so ashamed that I had cowered at a lost opportunity. Now, maybe it's uh, not the Monday morning conversation. Uh, Maybe it's on the weekend and you're having dinner with friends or maybe uh, family and conversation turns to a public Christian figure or any kind of religious topic or religious extremism and you've got a chance to say something about the difference that Jesus has made to your life. Religion causes all wars, says your friend or your brother, whoever it is. And you might say to yourself or even just think to yourself, well, it didn't cause World War I. It didn't cause World War II. It didn't cause Korea or Vietnam. And they were the four biggest conflicts in the 20th century. So there you go. And you know, you've got to admit that radical Islam somehow connected to a lot of the violence in our world today. And you, know, you don't have all the answers and religious violence of any kind distresses us. And you might judiciously decide not to take that bait from your brother or your friend or whoever it is. But it's odd that we... We can't or don't say anything about the difference that Jesus has made to our own lives, that our faith in him has made us more conscious of the needs of others and less feeling the need to seek revenge when we've been wronged. And so we might say nothing at all or we might just shake our heads at the most recent suicide bomb attack or hostage scenario or we might discuss foreign policy. And it's not an outright denial, is it? But the chance... To say something, anything about our faith in Christ just kind of goes squandered. Or we might steer the conversation away from Christ or just around him. Talk about church, sort of feels like we're talking about Jesus. Or Christian institutions or religion in general. And so we deny knowing him, not outrightly, no, but in just missing opportunities that are there. And sometimes we have to admit we feel we do it almost deliberately. Now the truth is we can deny knowing Jesus with our words or lack thereof and we can also deny knowing him if there's a lack of his influence in our actions and in our lives. Uh, And if we were to picture the Christian life in a quadrant kind of this way where we're thinking about the presence of kind of Jesus' words in our words and the presence of Jesus' actions in our actions, well we'd all love to be in that quadrant where both our words and our lives testify to the grace of God that we've found in Christ Jesus. In the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, not trusting in ourselves but in Him, of course, that's where we'd all love to be. If you're a non-Christian person here today, that's where we'd all love to be. We'd love to be people that just live you know, lives that testify to Jesus with our life and our lips. I mean, none of us want to be in that quadrant down there where neither our lips nor our lives say anything about Christ, where we're indistinguishable from unbelieving people around us, where we've got nothing of Christ to offer to anyone. Uh, Look, I would say if you call yourself a Christian and you think my life never testifies to him, my lips never testify to him, my Christian faith is just an intellectual agreement that Jesus lived or that God exists, 
or that I've been forgiven in some way, well, friend, I'm personally worried for you and we should have a conversation. What we've just been talking about is what it might look like if we live godly Christian lives. I'm not talking about perfect lives, but godly lives yet deny Jesus with our lips, with our words. But the truth is there's another way we can deny knowing Jesus, even if our lips are quick to confess his name. And that is when there is just little of his grace and there's little of his patience and there's little of his forbearance and there's little of his hospitality and warmth and little of his forgiveness and little of his love and little of his generosity in evidence in our lives. I mean, isn't that one of the ways that Christians get a bad reputation in our society when we say one thing we honor Jesus with our lips but then our lives we don't we end up as hypocrites in the process I suspect we all know stories have all heard stories of people who are business leaders or educational leaders or civic leaders or celebrities and they claim to be Christians that I deny knowing Jesus with their words, but when you look at their lives and decisions, you cannot help but think, gee, I just wish they wouldn't identify as Christians. They just don't make it easier for the rest of us. They don't commend the ways of Christ to our watching world. You see, you can deny knowing Jesus with your words or your lack of them, and you can deny knowing Jesus with your life and your actions or the lack of them. And neither of those things are good, are they? And so having identified the mistake, well, the mistakes of Peter amongst our own common habits and failings, let's think uh, finally about how we avoid continuing in those ways so that we can avoid sharing Peter's regrets continuously. And friends, I've got to say, at this point, it really just would be so easy for me to flog us all. Try harder. Say more. Do more, you worthless Christians. Don't you know that if you're drawn into ever deeper compromise, your whole life will be a continual denial of Christ? But I won't say that. And I won't ask if you does come into church, fill you with dread rather than quickening your soul because it reinforces the hypocrisy of your life. See, I won't ask you that question because I know what the answer would be if you asked me that question. 2.4 seconds is all it takes for us to get immobilized by guilt. 2.2, if I'm having a good day. And so it really doesn't make me clever to lay it on by beating your brow. And in fact, it's very interesting to see how Jesus responds, the resurrected Jesus responds to Peter at the very end of John's gospel. Flick forward just a few pages to John chapter 21. Because Jesus doesn't immobilize Peter with guilt. Three times... Verses 15 to 19, Jesus asks Peter, although he calls him Simon, says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Gently, I think he asks, but it still hurt Peter. It still stung. And it's as if each time Jesus asked him that question, he was kind of winding back one of those denials. And I know that each time it was a stabbing reminder of those denials, but I think Jesus' intention was not to rub his nose in it. Because at the end of that interchange in verse 19, he says to Peter, follow me. You're still on my team. You're still one of my guys. 
And interesting too, Peter doesn't respond with his customary bravado or self-confidence. I mean, you don't hear him say, Lord, there's no way I'm ever going to. Or Jesus, from now on I will always. You know, he doesn't respond from that. We know, in fact, from the book of Acts, which follows, that having relied here on Jesus' restorative words rather than his own skill set, he's a changed character. He went from over-promising and under-delivering to being the rock that his name suggests. Not that he was perfect, not that he understood everything straight away with absolute clarity, but the book of Acts and Peter's two letters reveal that he willingly took on board the hardship that knowing and proclaiming Christ would involve. And he just got on with it. And so if we are going to avoid the mistakes and the regrets of Peter in the area of denying Jesus, the answer is not just to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You know, friends, that we are not one of God's children because we're good at sharing our faith any more than we are one of his children because we're good at not lying or not complaining or not getting drunk or we're good at sexual fidelity or whatever it is. We're not saved by our evangelism. We are saved by God's grace in Christ Jesus, which is accessed through our faith. And as ever, in this area, we need to remember that to all those who come to Jesus in faith, he knows us. And he loves us, and he restores us, and he forgives us. And even though we have failed in the past, he wants to use us in the future to build his church and his kingdom by testifying to him and his wonderful goodness with our lips and with our lives. And so, of course, it's going to be relying on Jesus' love of us rather than resting on our own self-confidence or bravado or skill set. But I will say it will likely mean, as it did for Peter, taking on board that testifying to Jesus with our lips and with our lives will draw some criticism. It will draw fire. It just has to, especially in this age. But I want to say, for all those who trust in Jesus and all those who take on board that it will draw some fire, why not just give things more things a go this year? I mean, it's the start of a new year still. Why not just change those Monday morning conversations? Why not change that school drop-off? Why not just include some mention of what you've done on the weekend and just see where the mention of meeting with people in the name of God and, and faith in Christ, where that might lead over time. And when that topic of religious violence comes up at dinner, why, why not? I mean, you don't have to have all the answers to say something about the difference that following Jesus has made to your life, that it's somehow dulled your your desire for revenge, that marvellously it's opened up your ability to forgive, assuming that it has. Why not offer to pray for people when you hear they're going through difficult times? Most people would say, I'd appreciate that. Or invite them to church. Or ask them if they'd like a book about Jesus. Or, 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 and you fill in the gaps. As we finish, it's uh, likely that uh, many times in life we will think to ourselves, if only I could rewrite the script, if only. Well, Peter certainly felt that when he denied knowing Jesus three times on the eve of Jesus' execution. But let me say, the good thing with this part of the Christian life is that we have opportunities all the time to rewrite the script, to trust in Christ, to accept that collateral fallout, to give things a go. So that we can say, I know Jesus.
I know him. Would you like to know him too? Well, I'm going to pray that God would help us to be those sorts of people this year. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Father God, we do thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the Apostle Peter and its very realistic account of him. We uh, empathize with his failings because we share in them. But we want to do more than that. We want to learn from his mistakes so that we don't share in his regrets continuously. Lord, forgive us for those times where we have denied knowing Jesus in whatever way we've done that. Give us a healthy appreciation for how much you love us. Give us a realistic expectation of the way our world will respond to us. And then give us courage that rests on Jesus' love for us. So rather than denying knowing him, we can say, I know him. I know him. Would you like to know him too? And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. We'll finish our time together, uh, folks, with a song. It's a great way to respond. The collection bags will come around, and if you'd like to pop a Connect card,